0: City WLCC Brandon Faith Talk Tampa. Download the Faith Talk Tampa app or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey.
1: The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded.
0: Moses fled Egypt to live with Gentile desert dwellers in an area known as Midian, probably where the contemporary nation of Saudi Arabia is now located. And he lived there in Midian, we're told, for the next 40 years, having married and then fathered two children. Now, I want to stop here and consider how Stephen's words about the first 40 years of the life of Moses are relevant to us, how they apply to us. And to do that, we first need to remind ourselves that in saying these words about Moses, Stephen is making an argument. He's building a case because he has a definite point that he's working towards making, and that point being that the Jewish people have a long history of rejecting those whom God has chosen to deliver them. And the prime example of all of this is Moses. But it didn't stop with Moses. It's not isolated with Moses. Even before that, Joseph didn't stop with Joseph. It continued in Jewish history, culminating, folks, in the nation's rejection of Jesus as their Messiah and Savior.
1: our verse-by-verse broadcast, we're going to see a very interesting part of Moses' life. That is, when he tried to deliver Israel on his own. However, that is not all that we will be studying today. Our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff, is going to take us deeper in the subject of rejecting the Holy Spirit. I have to say that for all the times I've read through this account of Stephen's mock trial... I didn't see all the aspects of it that Pastor Steve has been teaching us. There is far more in this passage than we realize, so let's get ready for today's broadcast with one question in mind. God, am I resisting the Holy Spirit? Here is Pastor Steve Kreloff.
0: Now, what we read here is that on two consecutive days, Moses saw an injustice being done to his fellow Jews. And he tried to intervene and rescue them. The first incident involved a Jewish man being unjustly treated and abused by an Egyptian. And Moses intervened and rescued this Jewish man by killing the Egyptian. Exodus chapter 2 says that Moses buried the Egyptian in the sand, hoping to hide his murder and to keep it a secret. And by this action of striking down the Egyptian, we read that Moses assumed, he supposed, he assumed that the Jewish people would understand that God was giving them salvation from the Egyptians by his hand. He thought it would be obvious seeing who he was, what kind of man he was, and what he did to this Egyptian, but they did not understand. The second incident took place the following day when Moses saw now two Jewish men fighting each other, and he tried to bring about reconciliation. But they rejected his attempt at reconciliation with the one who was injuring the other, challenging his right to be their judge and leader, even asking if Moses intended to kill him like he killed the Egyptian the day before. And when Moses heard these words, when he became aware that others were aware that he had murdered an Egyptian, he knew he was in big trouble. He knew that he had to flee Egypt because having broken now all ties with the royal family, he would now be viewed as a Jewish insurrectionist attempting to lead a rebellion to overthrow the Egyptians and therefore Pharaoh would attempt to kill him. So Moses fled Egypt to live with Gentile desert dwellers in an area known as Midian, probably where the contemporary nation of Saudi Arabia is now located. And he lived there in Midian, we're told, for the next 40 years, having married and then fathered two children. Now, I want to stop here and consider how Stephen's words about the first 40 years of the life of Moses are relevant to us how they apply to us. And to do that, we first need to remind ourselves that in saying these words about Moses, Stephen is making an argument. He's building a case because he has a definite point that he's working towards making, and that point being that the Jewish people have a long history of rejecting those whom God has chosen to deliver them. And the prime example of all of this is Moses. Moses. But it didn't stop with Moses. It's not isolated with Moses. Even before that, Joseph didn't stop with Joseph. It continued in Jewish history, culminating, folks, in the nation's rejection of Jesus as their Messiah and Savior. We know that this is where Stephen is headed, because when we jump ahead to verses 51 and 52, we see him using the Jewish people's rejection of Moses to condemn the Sanhedrin For doing the very same thing in rejecting the ultimate deliverer, Jesus Christ. And he accuses them of rejecting Christ for the very same reason the Jewish people of Moses' day rejected him. Notice again what Stephen says in verses 51 and 52, because we're going to camp here for a little bit. He says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. So he's moving away from the history of the Jewish people to now. This is you. This is who I'm speaking to. This is right now happening. Now notice that the reason Stephen gives for this rejection of Jesus is that he says they, like their ancestors, continually resist the Holy Spirit. This is the reason he says that they are stiff-necked. What does that mean? It means they're so stubborn as to not bow themselves in submission to God. They're just stiff-necked. And this is why he says you're uncircumcised in heart and ears, meaning that you are as unresponsive to divine truth as uncircumcised pagans are. So here's the real question that we need to be asking. What does it mean to resist the Holy Spirit? That's where all this stems from. Because this, says Stephen, this is the ultimate reason the Jewish people rejected Moses and Jesus. And folks, it is the same reason that people today continue to reject Jesus Christ. Nothing really has changed. The human heart has not changed. So what does it mean to always resist the Spirit of God? It means to continually refuse to respond to the Holy Spirit when he speaks to us. And how does the Spirit of God speak to us? He speaks to us whenever the Word of God is preached or taught. But to resist the Spirit is to physically, you hear His Word spoken, but not allow those words to penetrate your heart, your mind, your soul, your life. This is precisely what Jesus meant when on many occasions He said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Not just hear physically, but let it penetrate Go beyond your physical ears. And why don't we allow these words to penetrate our hearts? It's because we're set in our sinful ways. So that we stiffen our necks and we refuse to bend in obedience and submission to God's word. In other words, we don't want to change and do what scripture says. And we're not going to change. That's what it means to resist the spirit of God. So how many people today have been raised... In Christian homes, they've heard the word of God over and over and over again. They've heard it from their parents. They've heard it from their Sunday school teachers. They've heard it from their pastors. They've heard it from their friends. Yet they continue to resist the Holy Spirit because they refuse to bend their stubborn hearts in submission to Jesus Christ. They know the truth. They've heard the truth many times. They've even experienced the conviction of their sin many times, but they continue to resist. It's not only those who have been raised in Christian homes. It's those who have had friends and loved ones witness to them over and over and over again, and they continue to resist. It's those who have been in churches that proclaim the gospel, and they keep coming to those churches and hearing gospel messages, and they continue to resist and resist and resist. Listen, this is exactly why the Jewish people of our Lord's day rejected him. They knew The prophecies about him from the Old Testament, they were not ignorant. They knew the prophecies. They saw his many miracles. And those miracles authenticated him as the Messiah. Others didn't come along and do miracles. They saw that. They heard the wisdom in his teaching that revealed him as none other than deity. For never did a man speak like this. And yet they would not bend their sin-hardened necks and submit to him, but continue to resist him, ultimately calling for him to be crucified. Just to eliminate him. I don't want to hear that anymore. You see, to accept Jesus Christ, and we use that term, to accept Jesus Christ, but I'm not sure it's really understood, because it's not a matter of simply acknowledging and accepting the truth about him. Accepting Jesus Christ means to follow him. It means that there in your life, there will be radical changes made in your life. It means dying to yourself and your sinful desires. It means putting Christ first as your Lord and master. It means giving up idols that are in your heart. Those things that mean so much to us that we worship them because we feel we must have them and we can't live without them. That's an idol. And that, my friends, is why the majority of Jewish people back then and the majority of people today, both Jews and Gentiles, continue to resist the work of the Holy Spirit when the Spirit of God presents Christ to them through the preaching of His Word. You see, they simply don't want Christ because they're not willing to give up their sin and live as the Word of God tells them to live. Now, they might hide behind academics and make you think that it's really an academic issue and an intellectual issue. It is not. It is a moral issue. You see this illustrated very clearly in the ministry of John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ, He was the one announcing to the nation of Israel, the Messiah is coming, he's even here. So repent of your sin, forsake your sin. That was John's message. He preached the message of repentance of the Jewish people, declaring to them that faith in the Messiah demanded that they live a certain way, which was the evidence of genuine repentance. And notice what he told the people that day. I'm going to Luke chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. This was John's ministry. Here's what we read. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, they would be baptized by him as evidence that they had repented of their sin. Here's what he said, not a user-friendly kind of message. He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Now, In another gospel account, in Matthew's gospel account, he specifically tells us that these words were directed not to people in general, but to some Pharisees and Sadducees, religious hypocrites who were trusting in their ancestral ties to Abraham for their salvation. They felt that their salvation came because they were Jewish people. Not true, but that's what they thought. These men were evil men. These men poisoned people's minds with error and falsehood, and thus the reason John referred to them as a brood of vipers. They were snakes. They poisoned people, and he called them to repent, which means, as I said, to forsake their sin and then to produce the fruits of a repentant life. In other words, John told them to live in such a way that reflects genuine faith. If you really have repented, if you really have faith in Messiah, There will be changes in your life. And in response then to some people who heard John say this to those Pharisees and Sadducees, they asked him what repentance would look like in their lives. We heard you speak to them. What would it look like practically in our lives? Notice how John responds. Notice the practical outworkings of repentance. Verses 10 through 14 of Luke 3. And the crowds were questioning him saying, what then shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Don't take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages." In other words, true repentance, he's saying, demands a life of being merciful, being generous with others, and having financial integrity. So as not to take advantage, to exploit anyone financially. Now, when people are told such things, they're going to do one of two things. They are either going to repent and place their trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation, and then they will start producing these life-changing evidences of salvation as the Spirit of God works in their life, or else they are going to continue to resist the Holy Spirit's words of conviction and truth about Christ. And inevitably, if they do this, their hearts will grow harder and colder. And they will do this. Why? Because they are quite content with their sin. And they're not interested in making any changes. Listen, this is why Jesus explained the unbelief of his day in these words, John chapter 3, 19 through 20. He said, this is the judgment that the light, meaning himself, he's come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light. They love the darkness. Why, Jesus said, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. They're not neutral to the light. They hate Christ because they love their sin. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Folks, this is why the Jewish people of our Lord's Day rejected him. With all that they knew, all that they observed, all that they heard from his precious lips, they rejected him. And this is why people today reject him. They hate him because they love their sin, the very sin he calls them to forsake. Now, you may be wondering at this point, if not at this point, you would wonder. So I'm going to try to bring things into focus, you may be wondering about why the people then of Moses' day would reject him. Why wouldn't they just accept him? After all, why wouldn't they want to follow someone who would lead them out of Egypt and deliver them from this horribly oppressive situation? Why would they say no to that, at least initially? But the reason they rejected Moses, listen closely, is because while life no doubt was difficult for the Jewish people in Egypt, they loved and enjoyed the ungodly way of life that they had in Egypt. They were very comfortable there. Not physically, but emotionally, culturally, even religiously. You see, over the many years of living in that pagan land, it had been hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jewish people had grown accustomed to the Egyptian lifestyle, including their worship of so many false deities. That was a very integral part of their lifestyle. We know this was the case because years later, when Moses led them out of Egypt, they continued to worship their former deities, and they longed in their hearts to go back to Egypt so that they could return to those deities. This is precisely what Stephen, a little bit later in his speech, will say. We haven't gotten up to the details of this, but I'm jumping ahead so you see this. Acts 7, verses 39 through 41. This is when they're out in the wilderness. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, Stephen says, but repudiated him and in their hearts turned back To Egypt, saying to Aaron, that's the brother of Moses, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. At that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Listen, although they had physically departed from Egypt, their hearts were still there. Their hearts were still in Egypt, and that's why when Moses And this is what Stephen is talking about. When Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the law from God, they're worshiping a golden calf that they asked Aaron to make for them. This is what they had done in Egypt. Don't think that they were set apart for the Lord. Don't think that these were godly people following the revelation of God. They may have been Jewish, but they were pagans in heart. See, the Jewish people were rebellious towards God, and though they did, yes, they did eventually physically follow Moses out of Egypt, their hearts, as I said, never really left Egypt. That's why as you go through Exodus, you see them continuously grumbling and complaining against Moses and threatening him that they're going to return to Egypt. Did you bring us out in the wilderness so that we would die here? so that you would starve us here. We can go back to Egypt where there's plenty of food. And they did things like this all the time. In doing this, they were resisting the Holy Spirit because they were resisting the God-appointed leadership of Moses. And this resistance was evident the very first time that Moses intervened in trying to help his fellow Jews, even before he led them out of Egypt. Who made you a ruler over us? Who made you a judge over us? That is resisting the Holy Spirit. Started even back then. Listen, make sure that you are not resisting the Holy Spirit. Now you may think, well, I'm a believer in Christ, so this doesn't apply to me. Oh no, it very well may apply to you. There are many Christians who resist the Holy Spirit. Listen, if God has been doing something in your life, impressing upon you, as you read the word, or you're speaking through other people as they bring biblical principles into your life, and it's gone on and on and on, not just weeks, but maybe months and years, you keep hearing the same thing, the same thing, and you're not doing it. That's resisting the Holy Spirit. You refuse to obey a biblical truth, or maybe many biblical truths, or you're fighting God on something that he keeps impressing on you to do, or you're resisting the spiritual leadership of someone God has placed over you, if you're doing that, you are resisting the Lord. Then what do you do? Well, simply repent. Stop doing it. Repent and submit to him. Do what God is telling you to do. If Jesus is your Lord, then yield to his authority in your life. Jesus one day said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things I tell you? What a brilliant question. But if you're not a Christian, you must immediately, immediately stop resisting the Holy Spirit's appeals to you to come to Christ for salvation. It may be through what you're hearing preached here. It may be through friends witnessing to you. It may be through books or materials or tracts people have given you. But you've got to immediately turn to Christ. It's serious. Why? Because Scripture says today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. If you're still being convicted of your sin, if you're still being convicted of your need to trust Christ for salvation, then respond immediately because there comes a point where it becomes too late in the sense that the Holy Spirit stops convicting you and your heart grows so cold you don't hear that conviction. So today if you hear his voice respond to it, or it may be too late tomorrow. And there's no better illustration of that than some of the Pharisees in our Lord's day who saw him do miracle after miracle. And what did they conclude? He's satanic. He's doing miracles by Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. He is in league with Satan. Listen, you don't come to that point unless you have resisted and resisted and resisted. And your heart is so hard that when the Son of God God in human flesh stands before you and raises Lazarus from the dead and does other miracles, you don't come to that point of thinking that he's satanic unless you continue to resist the Spirit of God. So stop resisting him. I'm going to ask when we close the service some of our elders to come up here and if you want to speak to one of them about your soul, about trusting Christ, I invite you to do so. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for... These words that we have been allowed by you to study, powerful words from Stephen, powerful words, true words, Lord. I pray that you would work in the lives, first of all, Lord, in the lives of our people, those who claim to know you. I pray that if it resonates with them, that there have been those who have told them issues time and again, and they have not been responsive, that they will recognize that this is serious. This is resisting the Holy Spirit and that they would repent and begin to do what you've told them to do. I pray, Lord, for those who have sat under the preaching of the word of God, perhaps for many years, and yet have never trusted Christ, and have heard you speak to them time and again, I pray that this would be the day of their salvation. Only you can open their hearts. Only you can bring about regeneration, and then bring about, Lord, true, genuine conversion. We ask you to do that, even today. And we pray, Lord, that you will help us to make sure that our hearts are always in submission to Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Deliverer from sin. We pray this in His name. Amen.
1: We are just about out of time on today's verse-by-verse broadcast, but that topic of resisting the Holy Spirit is very powerful. It's easy to think, well, I'm a Christ follower, so this doesn't apply to me. However, that is not the case. Many Christians resist the Holy Spirit. As you read or hear the Word and there are biblical principles that keep coming to your attention and you do nothing, well, that is resisting the Holy Spirit. Refusal to obey biblical truth. Hmm. Well, it's easy to read this passage and look at the response of the Sanhedrin and condemn them for resisting the Holy Spirit. However, as we've heard today, it is important for us to make sure we are not doing the same. Please join us for the next verse-by-verse broadcast when Pastor Steve will continue in our series, Stephen's Defense Before the Sanhedrin.